This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The trial of 18-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse has captivated the country. Was the teen looking for trouble during protests last year when he showed up in Kenosha, Wisconsin, armed with a rifle? Or was he there simply to protect business owners and keep the peace? Either way, two people were killed, a third hurt. The jury apparently believed that it was self-defense, acquitted Rittenhouse, and will go in-depth. Vice President Kamala Harris had presidential powers for a time today when President Biden underwent a colonoscopy. But at Biden's age, a colonoscopy is not considered a routine procedure. So why did he need it? And the House passed the president's big social spending plan, but it faces an uncertain future in the Senate. More people are showing up to hospitals to be treated for eating disorders, the pandemic to blame. Speaking of, CDC advisors support expanding COVID vaccine boosters to all U.S. adults. California has been ahead of the feds on this one. And the UC system now officially stopping the practice of looking at standardized tests when it comes to admissions. Do you remember the grueling process of the SAT and the ACT they added that one on too yeah letters everyone looking for I forget even the numbers we were supposed to hit right but it was very like I need over this like 710 or something I think it had 1700 or 1400 or whatever it had to be over one yeah Yeah. anything (laughs) over one was okay and when in doubt you picked C on multiple choice because C was the most (laughs) common that was always the rumor right yeah (laughs) okay let's uh, start with uh, Kyle uh, Rittenhouse trial with us now is Paul Booker he's a legal analyst and criminal defense uh, lawyer in Wisconsin. Kyle, thanks for being with us. Uh, appreciate it. Paul, rather. Sorry. Thanks for being with us, Paul. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me on. So let me ask you uh, something. There are some trials, some cases, as you know, whether they mean to or not, that that sort of carry with their verdicts a social message of some type. Do you think that was the case with this trial? And if so, what's the message? Well, I think it did start out that way. That's for sure. This uh, case, I think, as a prosecutor, and now I do defense work, um, but was overcharged to begin with. But the message to take away from this is not that Kyle Rittenhouse was a hero, not that Kyle Rittenhouse was a vigilante, not that he was a white supremacist. Uh, Those are all wrong messages. And if the message being taken from this is, hey, uh, Rittenhouse in Kenosha went to this place with an AK-47 and he he killed two people, and he did, He, he committed two counts of homicide. Um, and um, and blew off the shoulder generally of another person. I'm going to do the same thing when there's a social uprising in L.A. or Long Beach or you know Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. I can do that. Wrong, wrong, wrong. This case was so factually specific that I don't think you can replicate it. I really don't uh, because the facts are so unique. So I don't think it ever started out with a social social message. Message, and I know Attorney Richards indicated that uh, he made it clear to Mr. Rittenhouse that if you want me to be a social warrior, you got the wrong guy. Uh, I know Richard is a good guy. Uh, this was a case of self-defense, factually specific to the, the unique facts in this case. Nothing more. I wouldn't read more into it. It's not a Second Amendment case. Was there something about the self-defense law in Wisconsin that contributed to this, or was it a sloppy on the part of the prosecution? I mean, some of the, the commentary is, is talking about, you know, the witnesses that came up almost seemed like they were making uh, the defense's case uh, when they were being, you know, state witnesses. And it's the whole thing about never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. We were learning stuff during trial that you would think the prosecution would not be trying to ask. 
I agree. Um, that's the number one rule of cross-examination. Never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. But um, after doing prosecution for 30 years and now in the defense side for 12, sometimes you get just bad witnesses. I mean, they're bad. They're bad. They're bad on paper and they're worse on the stand. But you got to put them on. And so you try to minimize it. And the defense took a, a full advantage of it, knowing that that was going to happen. And clearly, you're right. It, it did look like, holy cow. Uh, this witness is somebody that defense was going to call. In addition to the witness, the defense did call that the government did not. The uh, gentleman who was the uh, doing the videotaping, uh, he uh, he definitely made the defense case. But again, this I, I wouldn't read more into this, and I, I really hope people don't uh, because you know it'll be a a great opportunity for defense lawyers. I'm telling you, you can't go into a social. Uh, uprising with a firearm, which Rittenhouse should not have done. That was absolutely stupid, immature, uh, whatever term you want to put on it. I don't think he was looking for trouble, but he sure the hell found it. And uh, Paul, let me, Paul, let me ask you this, because uh, I remember uh, as a young reporter, I used to cover a lot of trials, and I would ask uh, <laughs> defense attorneys, are you going to put your client on the stand? And 99.9% of the time, they would sort of look, you know, ash, they would turn ashen, and they would sometimes laugh a little, and they'd go, oh, God, no, the last thing we want to do is put, you know, him or her on the stand. Yet in this case, uh Kyle Rittenhouse was put on the stand. Clearly, it worked in his favor. Why was that? Well, I don't think you have much choice when you have a race self-defense. Uh, that's uh, what we call a but-for defense. I, I did my first year in law school at Peppermack. So we used to call it a but-for defense, that I did it, I shot this person, but I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done it but-for. And so in the circumstances in this case, if the facts would have come in so strong, for self-defense, and they did on one case, on one count, I mean, uh, you have to put your client on. And plus, the jury's asking themselves, what are you doing in Kenosha, man? Why are you here? Why did you come down here? So I think that is, it's, a, it's a defendant's decision, Mr. Rittenhouse's decision, but I, I just believe anytime you claim self-defense in a case at this level, you almost have no choice but to prep your client to put them on. Things could change. You got to bob and weave during the trial and make a, you know, a change. I just finished a, a seven-count uh, charge or indictment against a DEA officer for sexual assault, and I was going to put him on. I had him prepped to go on. He wanted to go on. He was angry that he was charged, but the evidence came in so favorable to us, I didn't put him on, and we got an acquittal six out of seven counts. We didn't get a clean sweep, but uh, he didn't do a rocket ride in prison. Paul Booker, legal analyst, criminal defense attorney in Wisconsin. Paul, thanks. President Biden handed over presidential powers to Vice President Kamala Harris for about an hour and a half today as he underwent what has been called a routine colonoscopy just before his 79th birthday. It was part of his annual physical, but a colonoscopy isn't recommended as a routine screening procedure for someone his age. With us is Dr. Hardeep Singh, who is a gastroenterologist at uh, gastroenterologist at Providence St. Joseph Hospital in Orange. Uh, Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thank you. So uh, I was looking at uh, the screening recommendations before we went on the air, and it, it seems to sort of stop for routine colonoscopies at, I think it's age 75, and then after that it says discuss with your doctor. Why would somebody of the president's age need to have a colonoscopy if they're symptomless? So we get our recommendations on screening from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, 
And the recommendation is that anyone should have a colonoscopy above the age of 45 and up to the age of 75. And then after that, from 75 to 85, it should be considered on a case-by-case basis. So, you know, without knowing the president's history, if this was a routine procedure, it could have been that uh, he had had a polyp in the past and that would require him to get a procedure after the age of 75 uh, up until the age of 85 just for, to prevent cancer. Why is there the cutoff at 75 if, you know, people have been doing pretty good up until that age and, and nothing was flagged or found, so it stops? Why is that? So colon cancer is a preventable disease. So if you estimate that a patient's going to live at least another 10 years, then you would want to do a colonoscopy to remove anything before they were to, going to develop cancer down the road. So if we were to assume that the president's in otherwise very good health, which he seems to be at age 78, this would just be a preventative procedure. Is the the other problem, uh, potential problem, once you get to the president's age, that the, the risk-benefit uh, analysis about, because there is general anesthesia, right, involved that the risk-benefit analysis starts tilting more toward heavier risk? That's that's a good point. Yes, as you get older, of course, the risk of sedation and the intrinsic risks of the procedure do increase a bit. But by its nature, doing a colonoscopy is essentially pretty routine. Um, but, of course, you have to judge the risk when you see the patient and decide if that's the right time to do the procedure on that particular patient. And it's the anesthesia, or if you have to remove something, then that is like an added risk? The anesthesia is, in general, not, not a high risk. Of course, there, there are some risks to your, uh, to your heart and lungs during the procedure, but those are quite low. Uh, the risk of the procedure itself, you could cause a tear in the colon, although that's, that's exceptionally rare, less than 1 in 3,000 cases. And, of course, if you have a polyp, which at his age you would see in about 30 to 40% of males, uh, of course, there is a risk of bleeding, but that's also low in, 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 the, in the neighborhood of about less than 1, 1 to 2%. Is the other uh, issue in terms of the age when it's recommended and, and the cutoff point, if you want to call it a, a cutoff point, because uh, by its nature, colon cancers tend to be very slow progressing? Yeah, in in general, they do tend to be uh, slowly progressive. But remember, colon cancer is a largely preventable disease. It's very common. Remember, it's the third most common cancer you can get both as a man and as a woman. So if you have a colonoscopy and you have a small precancerous growth and you remove it, your risk of getting colon cancer is essentially zero, provided you come in every five to ten years thereafter. So uh, in general, if you have the exam every five to ten years, the risk of your developing a tumor in the colon is very, very low. Dr. Hardeep Singh, gastroenterologist, Providence St. Joseph in Orange. Coming up a little bit later, the UC system says it is done for good with any and all standardized tests, SATs, when it comes to undergraduate admissions. So what replaces them? And Santa Claus might not be coming to town. The pandemic has led to a Santa shortage. Now, don't worry, because Christmas has not been canceled, at least not yet. <laughs> right now, though, the president's $1.7 trillion social spending plan, the Build Back Better bill, narrowly passed the House uh, today. Now it's going over the Senate, so we do this dance again. Joining us is Ursula Perano, politics reporter at the Daily Beast. Uh, Ursula, thanks for being with us. So what are uh, Cinema and Mansion saying? <laughs> you know, we would all love to know. Uh, <laughs> Senator Manchin has definitely indicated that he still has some concerns about spending levels in the bill. Of course, the recent inflation news 
has sort of driven those concerns even further. Uh, you know, spending and inflation are often discussed in close terms. And so I think we're going to be on the lookout for how we feel now that the bill is heading back to the Senate. And of course, Senator Kirsten Sinema is notoriously quiet. It's very difficult to get a read on what she is for or against in the bill. So, you know, I'm sure folks will keep asking, but, you know, we'll just have to see how time goes. I think the provisions to watch, though, are paid leave, which Senator Manchin has insisted that he does not think it belongs in a reconciliation bill, that it should be done on a bipartisan basis. The version that the House passed this morning does have paid leave proposals in it. And immigration hasn't necessarily been worked out yet. There are members who really want to keep immigration reforms in the bill, but there are still serious questions on if that's going to be allowed by the Senate. Of course, in a reconciliation bill, you can only deal with measures that are strictly about the budget. And the Democrats in the Senate have had a hard time so far arguing that immigration could be made about the budget. So is there any kind of a running bet on when this is going to, uh, if it does, get through the Senate? Are we going to be sitting here, you know, post-Christmas time still talking about it? Well, so Congress is going on recess next week because of the holidays. They're going to come back and they're supposed to really just have one more week before they are scheduled to go into recess for the holidays. I don't think that's going to happen. They have to deal with this bill. They have to deal with government funding still. They have to deal with the debt limit. There is a lot of stuff that they've sort of been kicking the can on uh, that's building up in this like early December deadline that they're all just having loom over their heads. So I definitely believe it's going to be into December. I think it's going to be towards mid-December. I don't think there's an expectation that they're going to be able to get it done super quickly. And of course, if the Senate changes anything in the bill, which they are extremely likely to, it has to go back to the House. We have to redo this whole process, sort of like a game of ping pong, you know. Did the yeah? Did the cost calculus change anything? Did it give more firepower to to some members? I mean, some House members saw it and they said, "Okay, add in the IRS tax stuff, and it's not that bad. It's not that expensive." Is that going to change anything over on the other side? I don't necessarily know if it's going to change anything. Again, Manchin's sort of the wild card there on spending levels and cinema as well. But I think most of the members would be most of the Democrats who need to vote for the bill would be appeased by uh, the numbers that came out yesterday. One sort of thing that I would be looking at is the salt tax provisions. Uh, Senator Sanders, who, you know, they need every single one of the 50 Democrats in the Senate to vote for the bill to pass. He has expressed some concerns about the, the raising the salt tax uh, cap because of, uh, it will primarily help wealthy people. There are some contingencies there about folks who live in states with higher cost of living. Uh, but Senator Sanders has some real concerns about including that in the bill. That could be a potential holdup as well. Why do you think, though, that the numbers, as you referred to them yesterday, that came out from the Congressional Budget Office, right, uh, would appease them? Because what what they said, right, was that it does raise, contrary to what the president, by the way, had promised, uh, it does raise, by some degree, uh, the deficit, doesn't it? Yeah, there's going to be a, a slight raise in the deficit. And I say slight because right now it does seem very immediate. Um, over time, the argument Democrats are making is that over the next 10 years, it's really a very marginal raise to the debt. But, yeah, folks are definitely going to lean on that. And I will say Republicans in their arguments last night, that was the main thing they talked about was the spending. This is a big spending bill. It's not as big uh, as Democrats wanted. Originally, they wanted $6 trillion, then it was 3.5. Now it's 1.75. Uh, and there is some speculating that it's going to shrink even more in the Senate uh, with certain things that might be changed in the pay fors and their other. But, you know, it's Democrats are going to spin it as like over time, 
this is only so much more to the deficit. Uh, but Republicans are obviously going to be pushing back on that pretty strongly. Ursula Perano, politics reporter for The Daily Beast. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Not only have drug overdoses been on the rise during the pandemic, so have hospitalizations for eating disorders. They've doubled when it comes to anorexia, bulimia, and others. Researchers attribute this increase to multiple factors. With us to explain them is Lauren Smoller, Senior Director of Programs at the National Eating Disorders Association. Lauren, thanks for being with us. Happy to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about how it's almost a kind of perfect storm situation, isn't it? With so many different factors coming together and all because of the pandemic? Yeah, that's right. The pandemic really heightened issues all around that could bring upon eating disorder concerns. There was uh, food concerns with access to food in the grocery stores right at the beginning, Um, heightened levels of anxiety and stress, it it really all can contribute to um, issues that may have already been present or or coming on with new issues that people haven't experienced before related to eating disorders. Okay, so some of it is getting exacerbated because of the world we're living in right now. I'm also wondering, though, maybe some others are kind of being spotted. Maybe kids are coming home from college or, or you're noticing a family member and you're thinking maybe I'm seeing some signs here or something like that. Could that also maybe play a role? Yeah, absolutely. We know that when people were living in closer quarters uh, for a while, that also sometimes exasperated symptoms. There are opportunities that people didn't have before that presented um, opportunities for them to seek help or for them to recognize that they had issues that they maybe had other coping skills for before that the pandemic eliminated. So is there an expectation that as the um, pandemic hopefully wanes, uh, that some of these issues will soften somewhat? Well, we certainly hope that some of the anxiety and the stress that people have been experiencing for the last couple of years now will reduce. Um, But some of this has just raised conversations and awareness that haven't been possible before. Uh, There have been opportunities for people to get help virtually that weren't available prior to the pandemic. Uh, And there is also the conversation that has been started. So conversations just like this one, where people now have more awareness about eating disorders and the opportunity to get help that they may not have been aware of before. And you also hope that's what happens, right? Because you do want to reach out to somebody and get some help while you're noticing that maybe you're struggling and, and you're still going about your daily life. Because what we mentioned at the top there is the hospitalizations because of this are increasing. So that's at a point where either you've not sought out the care and it's gotten really bad or you need something like acute. You have to go to the hospital because you're, you're in such bad shape. Yeah, exactly. So we really do hope that people are reaching out earlier. If you are concerned about yourself or you're concerned about a loved one uh, and their relationship with their body or relationship with food, we really do encourage you to reach out earlier rather than later. Our helpline is a great resource to uh, talk to somebody who's trained to speak about these issues and get you connected with the care that you need. Are these issues impacting uh, across all demographics uh, in terms of age and also in terms of gender? Yeah, we are seeing that it's really not discriminatory. It's been affecting people of all different ages and genders and ethnicities. If you are worried about somebody, but it's one of those things, and we can apply this to a whole bunch of areas where you're afraid to say something or you think it's awkward, what do you what do you do? How do you start that conversation? 
If you're not sure how to start that conversation, we really do recommend that you call our helpline at 800-931-2237. We also have an online chat. So if you go to nationaleatingdisorders.org forward slash helpline, you can chat or text with a trained volunteer to start that conversation. But you can also just start with a very non-judgmental way of bringing your concerns to your loved one and letting them know that you're there and that you are encouraging them to get the support that they need. All right. Lauren Smaller, Senior Director of Programs, the National Eating Disorders Association. Oh, I wish I had uh, violin music for this one. Here comes the sob story. Remember the SATs, ACTs? You weren't a fan? No, I remember the pressure. A bad score could ruin your dreams of getting into a prestigious school. But you had to take them because colleges and universities required them for admission. Yeah, it was one of the things. Although the UC system now says it's done with all the standardized tests when it comes to undergrad admissions. Uh, they already backed away from the SAT scores. So is something going to replace these or, or does done mean done? Tyrone Howard, an education professor, founder of the Black Male Institute at UCLA. Tyrone, thanks for being with us. So for people who haven't been following a as of late when we've been having these discussions, the argument against the standardized tests is what? Well, the argument is that, number one, is the, the usage of standardized tests a good indication of future success at the college level? In addition to that, the argument is, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on what happens on this one day at this one time for the standardized test. When students do four years of high school, and the argument is, aren't four years of high school in terms of grades and courses and uh, extracurricular activities, aren't those a much better uh, sort of indication of how students would do compared to how this one standardized test might show? So uh, here's one question, though, that, that comes to mind. If the UC, not if, but by dropping the requirement for these tests, uh, and let's say a student wants to go on to some grad school for something, will grad schools be discriminatory when it comes to students who did or did not take these tests? Well, you know, I, I hope grad schools are watching what undergraduate programs are doing and ultimately follow suit, because the argument that one could raise, and there's some data that bears this out, that there is not necessarily a strong body of evidence to suggest there's a correlation between how well students do at the graduate level, that is, on standardized tests and their future success and completion of law degrees or, or medical degrees or you know, education degrees. So I think we have to start questioning the utility and the value of standardized tests when there's so many other factors that we can look at that can give us an indication of how well students might perform. Do you think a bunch of other systems were watching what UC would do? Because it's not some small school group. It's the University of California. If they say they're not going to do it, well, then everybody else kind of has an open door to say the same thing. Yeah, that's that's if I'm speaking frankly, that's my hope, because we know that the UC is, I would argue, the largest and most prestigious public university system in the nation, if not the world. And so I think other universities are watching and following students. So I think the news that UC decided it would not use SAT and ACT is a step in the right direction. There's so much to suggest in terms of data. Uh, test anxiety, uh, access to opportunities for test prep are not even equity conser- considerations. We've got to find a way to create more opportunity for those who may not have the resources, and this might be a step in the right direction. Yeah, I was going to say, and you just touched on it, that one of the arguments against these tests, right, is that they can be apparently prepped for. And if you have the money, you can get better prep. 
Absolutely. And that's one of the bigger, bigger considerations here. The fact that, you know, we see case after case where you have families who spend inordinate amounts of money with their young people's earliest sixth and seventh grade. They're putting four, five, six years of prep into these uh, these exams because they want their children to get into the best schools and universities across the country. What does that mean for a working class family that doesn't have the means to, to pay for test prep and they have to take the same test? Uh, yet one child has had so much more preparation compared to the other student, and we say that they're competing for the same spot. So there's an equity issue that has to be taken into consideration, and I think this helps to, to even the playing field more. Does that whole industry push back, or does it not really matter if they push back? I mean, they probably push back against uh, UC doing this, and it still happens. Yeah, they're going to push back, but if we can just be very frank about it, they would push back because they're going to lose a lot of money. Uh, this is a major industry, not just the testing industry, but the test prep industry. So they're going to raise concerns about the, the, the data that might exist that suggests that there's a correlation between how well students perform on these tests and the kind of college students that they are. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, if you're concerned about, you know, issues of, of equity and access and opportunity for all students, this is a this is a victory. So what happens to all those rich parents who have gotten used to uh, paying bribes to school to get their kids <laughs> advanced uh, and also, you know, paying through the nose to have them prepped for the test? What are they going to do now? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I wish I could answer that question. I don't know. I think what we, what those parents need to do is recognize that the four years of high school that all students are as to complete matter more, and they should weigh more, and the courses, and the rigor of those courses, and uh, how students do in terms of being well-rounded students, extracurricular activity, uh, different kinds of adversities that students have faced in life, that's your way into the equation, that there are lots of other factors that matter. It's not just about paying your way for test prep, but what kind of, you know, young person have you been? How well have you applied yourself? How much investment have you made in trying to make a difference in others? Uh, how much leadership have you shown? What kind of clubs and organizations have you been in? All those factors matter, and you can't just buy them. You're getting your tiny violin out for yeah. the. For the <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a tra- it's again. Yeah. It's, it's a tragedy for very rich people. Yeah. <laughs> when you heard the uh, the provost talking today, and he said we're, we're going to do test free admissions now and in the future, do you, did you take him to mean in the future, like forever, or is there still some other kind of? alternative out there that's not the big two that we're talking about can someone come up with something or is it just the whole testing mechanism is flawed it's good for school and grades and all that but like you said the one day and your whole you know what school you get into depends on it is is kind of bogus yeah you know i hope that this is an end uh, a permanent end to the use of standardized uh, assessments to get into colleges and universities i'm sure there will be some entities out there that will attempt to create some other form of assessment that will cost lots of money to take because it's just too big of an industry for someone not to try to find another way. I think we've got to put, in this particular case, uh, the importance of education over profit. I think we've got to recognize that, that we want to create a more uh, equitable society for young people who are trying their best to be you know, upwardly mobile and they see college as a way to do that. Uh, and for so long, especially for, you know, again, working class families and even for, you know, children of color, this was a huge obstacle uh, to getting into colleges and universities. So uh, I hope it's the end. Uh, but uh, we we will have to see what happens in the years to come. You know, I joked at the beginning uh, that uh, you can hear the cheers of some uh, students. Uh, do you think that they are going to be very happy by this? Or uh, do you think that some students may now start thinking, well, wait a minute, uh, is this going too far in the other direction? 
Yeah, there's there's never going to be, you know, um, any degree of unanimity around these issues because there are folks who do well at tests and, and they thrive on SAT and ACTs. But then the other side to that is that the level of angst and anxiety and just overall deep-seated fear that too many young people had around taking these tests is something we can't take lightly. And, and, and no, no student who does incredibly well for four years uh, should have, you know, his, her, or their uh, college prospects come down to what they do on that day for those three or four hours. Uh, you may have had, you know, a real bad morning. You may have an upset stomach that afternoon. You may have had your parents uh, fussing and, and fighting and arguing the night before. So many factors that can really throw you off. And all that hard work for four years can go down the tube in, in, a, in a matter of a moment's, uh, you know, notice because of how you do on these tests or how you don't do on these tests. Tyrone Howard, education professor, founder of the Blackmail Institute at UCLA. Tyrone, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Many doctors and health officials out there worrying about another winter COVID surge. They're hoping the booster shots can help prevent what we saw last winter. FDA says it's okay to give all adults Pfizer and Moderna boosters. CDC panel advisors have voted in support, so now we just wait for the sign-off from the director. Which is expected. California already letting adults get the boosters. Now the rest of the country set to follow with us is Dr. William Schaffner, professor of preventative medicine and infectious disease diseases at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and also a former epidemic intelligence officer at the CDC. He's been with us many times. Doctor, thanks for coming back. Always good to be with you, fellas. So are are we ready to just say to people that the so-called two-dose vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna, are really three-dose vaccines? Well, I would say that. Uh, I think officially people are not saying that. But it really does look as though what we thought could be a two-dose vaccine is really a three-dose vaccine. And now it's great. I think as soon as Rochelle Walensky, the CDC director, gives the sign-off, everyone age 18 or over will be eligible. They'll have it available and absolutely strongly recommended for everybody 50 and older to get that booster. Yeah, I was going to say, is that where the language gets kind of parsed out? Because they can okay them for everyone. They can say, yeah, you can get one if you want one. Or have they broken it up or are they going to break it up again where they say, okay, the 65 plus crowd, we know because you were always on the list for the boosters. But now we're saying if you, like you mentioned, are 50 or older, then yeah, you really should. You're being urged to go out and get one. Absolutely. Everybody 50 and older. Now, we should also say something about people who received originally the J&J vaccine. They should wait just two months, and all of them, whatever their age, they should definitely get a booster. What about people, doctor, who got their initial two fairly early on, and maybe it's a lot longer now, because they keep hearing this figure about at least six months, but for some people it's going to translate to, oh, but it's been eight months or maybe nine months for me. Is that still good? It's not only good, it may actually be a little bit better. It's very strange the way the immune system works. But once we prime it, it will remember. And if we give it a little more time to mature, sometimes it responds even better. So a little bit longer, maybe even better. And smart to put Moderna on the list with Pfizer just because they already authorized some mixing and matching, right? So now it's just a a no-brainer. Wherever you make your appointment, if you go in, then they've got one of these two. Just take it. That's the one you're going to get. That's exactly right. So when do we get told that we need a fourth shot? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
Well, we may down the road, but let's give that a little bit of time. You know, there are very clever vaccine scientists already trying to combine influenza vaccine with COVID vaccine in the anticipation that we might need an annual booster of them both. And if that worked, then we just have to roll up one sleeve, not two. There is a separate theory, though, that after three, if these really do end up being the three dose vaccines like this could buy us even longer than the six, eight months. Maybe this is a year or two or whatever it ends up being. And maybe you need another one down the line or maybe your body will just remember this all someday like it's supposed to. Wouldn't wouldn't that be great? Because we do have vaccines that after three doses last essentially a lifetime. The old hepatitis B vaccine is that way. And I've got my fingers crossed. You can't see it here on radio, but I do. I hope the protection is for a long duration. Now, what about people who are, you know, there are still people, as we know, who are adamant about getting vaccinated uh, and are now saying, well, you know what? Uh, I keep hearing about these pills, the Pfizer one, the Merck one that are probably going to be available fairly soon. So if I get sick with COVID, I'll just call my doctor and I'll get a prescription. I'll run down to the pharmacy. I'll take that. and I'll be good as new. Uh, Those are the same people who like to play roulette Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) because they're taking a chance that if they get sick, they'll be diagnosed quickly enough. And the, the uh, pills will be readily available. And that may be right, but you are taking a chance. I prefer to have a one-two punch. First, the vaccine. And then if I need it later, I'll have those pills available. Dr. William Schaffner, professor of preventative medicine, infectious diseases, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks. If you're a parent uh, and you have kids uh, with you, have them play a video game or something while we talk about it. <laughs> Hand them the iPad. <laughs> yeah. Like you're at a restaurant. It is a good time to do it because here's the thing. We may not be seeing as many Santa Clauses out there as usual at malls or holiday parties because there's a shortage of St. Nick's and it is because of, you guessed it, the pandemic. It's ruining everything. Yeah, it is. Uh, we managed to find a Santa who will be around. And uh, this one will be in the sleigh of the Hollywood Christmas Parade later this month. Timothy Conahan, also the National Santa for the Kringle Group and the National Santa for the Marine Corps. Um, it's a good thing Santa can be more than one place at a time because you're a busy guy. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm running all over the place, uh, particularly for the Marine Corps, helping them out with the Toys for Tots campaign. But uh, I will be out there in Los Angeles uh, Sunday the 28th for the uh, uh, Hollywood Christmas Parade. Did I just hear jingly bells? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is is <laughs> I have I, lots of bells. <laughs> can, I ask, can I ask you something? Are, are, are you yes. the real Santa? Because <laughs> well, you're, you're going to have to figure that out, you know. Because um, it sounds like you're all over the place. You always ask so. that: Are you the real Santa? And you have to look at them and say, "Well, what do you think?" And I usually then touch my tummy uh-huh. and I kind of pull on my real beard and uh-huh. say, "Hmm, what do you think?" Yeah, he's got a twinkle in his eye. <laughs> yeah, it's just just like it's supposed to be. So why is there a shortage? Now we said it's the pandemic. Is that right? Well, I, what has happened is that uh, about 80% of the Santas that I surveyed uh, this year said that uh, they've had their shots, they've had their uh, boosters and things, they're ready to go to work and everything. Uh, but uh, about 18% of them uh, said that uh, they're going to take the year off. There's just, it's, it's, it's the fact that they're A, not enough of their clients want them to come back. In other words, even the families are kind of, I think, 
uh, holding off a little bit. And then these Santas decided, you know, let's just be safe and we'll take one more year off. So uh, that does create a bit of a shortage uh, in, in some areas. So there's there's fewer events out there, too. I mean, some Santas, maybe they're in an older age group and they don't feel safe going out even with their shots. But then are there like fewer places for the Santas to go? There there are. You know, I, I do a lot of special events and a lot of the companies and the people that put those special events together. Some of them are, again, are also waiting another year. You know, or they're going to do a virtual type event. Uh, I'm actually doing a virtual event for Viacom on uh, Wednesday. And we're going to go nationwide with a little storytelling. So, uh, you know, there are things like that going on. In fact, virtual visits are uh, grew tremendously last year. Uh, uh, Zuhu is a big company that's doing uh, thousands of them, tens of thousands of them. Uh, and uh, it's just, you know, one of those unique things that's evolved because of the the virus um, but hopefully next year we'll be back uh, to a little more normal type thing what about elves <laughs> i never thought i'd ask that question <laughs> what, what about shortages elves? do we have yeah do we have a shortage of uh, elves which i guess we're short anyway no 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 and the elves very fortunately because of the magic of christmas and the magic of everything they're impervious to covid ah so. <laughs> good news good news straight from the source is there like a uh, like a santa training academy is there a santa boot camp uh, well, the, the Santa Boot Camp, we just finished today with uh, working with Old Navy. And this was a, a very special project. Uh, this is another area where there's a shortage, and that is diverse Santas. There are a lot of areas in the country where the families, uh, they've had the traditional Santa Claus, someone that looks like me, you know, Caucasian, white beard and everything. And yet in their community, there are very few black Santas or Hispanic Santas or even Asian Santas. So uh, Old Navy came up with the idea of having a uh, boot camp to invite people who maybe want to be Santa ambassadors. And uh, so we're doing that. In fact, uh, they've got a special website set up. People can go and watch a video. And I'm there along with uh, Santa Dion, uh, Santa Brian from Los Angeles and some others. And we're kind of giving handy hints on how to be an ambassador, how to greet children and talk to them. Well, and, uh, what's in, how do you become a, other than physical appearance, how do you become Santa Claus? Santa. How do you become Santa Claus? Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm very a good fortunate. One. Good this ambassador. Is, this is my 53rd year. I started in Vietnam doing it for my, wow. my buddies. And my beard was shaving cream in those days. <laughs> you know, and uh, then I came home and worked here in Los Angeles for Bullock's. Wow. Uh, okay. For them for three years, uh, all all as a 21, 22 years old. But uh, uh, and, and through my through my uh, my career and my work, uh, it just evolved. And when I got to the retirement point, you know, I I threw the razor away and lo and behold, I'm Santa Claus. <laughs> it works. <laughs> how, how do the kids like the virtual thing? I mean, it, you had to do it last year and maybe you got to do it this year. But does it go over? Well, the virtual, it, it does. And there are a lot of advantages for families and stuff because they can, uh, it's an experience for the kids. Uh, in some cases, we're, we're doing some uh, with uh, Zuhu. One of the things we're doing is we're doing about 10,000 of these with armed forces personnel all over the world. And here's, here's the family here in the States and dad or mom is on duty overseas. Grandma's in San Diego and Harriet's in Maine, and they can all be together on one virtual conference together with Santa. Huh. And so it does make a special thing. And of course, 
Santa has all the information about the kids. He's, yeah. uh, he always he knows. He spend a little more time than he does locally in the mall. Not, not <laughs> so, so Santa, uh, what I would like for Christmas is an all-expense-paid trip to Bora Bora. Can I get that? Uh, you know, somebody told me I should be checking on Charles and Mike. <laughs> good, you know. What list are we on? Yeah, are we in the A list? Wait, you know, you know, my magic is toys. Ah, uh, that's the key thing. You know, I okay. Get lots of How about a Lamborghini? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I get requests like that, but you know, and sometimes difficult questions too. Children want Santa to fix a divorce, ah, uh, or, or you know, bring somebody back that. Uh, what do you What do you say to a kid who says okay. that? What do you say to a well, kid who says, I, "I want you to fix a divorce"? Well, first thing you want to do is let them know you heard what they said, acknowledge what they said, and and let them know that you hope that. Things will work out. But even if they don't, remember that both parents love you. Santa loves you, too. And uh, somewhere in there, I'll add in that my magic is really toys. You know, Uh, I can't wave a magic wand and and fix things like that. Social things are very, very hard. Santa always knows the right answer, though. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, Timothy Conahan, National Santa for the Kringle Group, National Santa for the Marine Corps. Go see him at the Hollywood Christmas Parade. And uh, Google the picture, too, because this guy we talked to, yeah. is that's Santa Claus. I think it's the real yeah, one. Yeah, no, I think so, too. So is it, But is asking Santa for a Lamborghini too much, do you think? Really? <laughs> that was his way of saying you weren't on the good list. Yeah, I know. I was <laughs> Maybe <hoping>. next year. <laughs> All right, more in-depth next week, uh, Monday.